Maybe let, just, just let me ask kind of like big picture one or two questions. What, what advice do you have when people in our community, so this room is full of community leaders, so I have people watching online from all over the place, but this room here is actually community leaders. Um, when somebody in our community is in that deconstruction fra- phase, and yep. it's not like a neat linear process, it's emotional yep. and it's relational, yep. it's complex and contradictory at times, what like just pastoral advice do you have? Like you clearly have yes. a capacity to hold that with people and not berate them or answer all their questions or yep. shame them or get scared. You know, often for me, I know it, it'll trigger some of my own fear. You know what I mean? Like I'm just trying to stay saved in the city, you know? Yes. Yes. And, um, and so I know whenever I pastor from a place of fear, I always sabotage love. Yes. So like any just pastoral advice? You're, you're a PhD and a thinker, but... You're also a pastor. Like, yeah. just any advice? Well, to, to, to be honest, that, that little comment you made there, we sort of chuckled at it, um, that, that when somebody's going through these sorts of emotions and experiences, that for you as a leader, it brings up a lot of insecurities. Um, the truth of the matter is I can, I can identify a number of times when individuals in our church community would come to me in the, in the throes of deconstruction, and I could never identify it at the moment. But really, what my brain was doing is if this person spreads around too much, everyone's going to leave the church and I'm going to be out of a job. Yeah. And, and I, I don't say that to be proud of that. I say that to say um, any leader has motivations that are not always the, the most helpful in serving people in their deepest moments. So when my son comes home, my son Elliot is, he may be watching tonight. And if he is, buddy. How I'm, old is he now? He's nine. Nine years I old. I love you, kid. Okay. <laughs> you get in your PJs because it's bedtime. But... Um, when he comes home from school, it is not uncommon for him to come and just download stuff from the day. It was a hard day. Dad, like there was a bully and they like said something or they looked at me weird, whatever. And in those moments, my go-to response is to want to fix it. Okay, so well, the next time that kid does that, yeah. Here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna pop him a good one. You know, you whatever you tell him to do or whatever. It's not what the I told non, my the nonviolent way kids. of Jesus. <laughs> the nonviolent way of Jesus. No, <clears throat> you know. To you, quote my oldest son, Dad's a pacifist, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> my initial like heart as a dad is to want to fix this issue. And what I I have learned is that in those moments, my son is not asking for advice. He is asking for an ear. Yeah. What we often do as leaders, when somebody in deconstruction is, it comes to us, is we go into apologetics mode. We need to fix this. And what I have found is that eventually ends up pushing people further away. We need to practice a principle that I have come to call spiritual consent. And spiritual consent is simply this. Before we offer the advice, we ask if we can offer the advice. Hmm. Rather than jumping in with the brilliant idea we have about how they can fix their theology, yeah. ask, are you inviting me to share? And sometimes they're not. Yeah. And in that moment, consent matters. Yeah. Honoring their need to simply be heard honors them and their story. And so, practicing spiritual consent, not budging through the door without knocking. It's practicing the way of Jesus. Mm. Can, I, can I share something with you? And if they say, I'm not ready, awesome, I'm here. Reminds me, um, I remember 
doing training a couple of years ago for spiritual direction. And one of the things they teach you, they call three-way listening, yeah. which is like teaching you to really listen. So they'd have us do exercises where we'd sit and listen to somebody talk for 20 minutes and we weren't, it was like wax on, wax off. First you couldn't say or do anything. You couldn't fix, you couldn't disagree and people would say things, you're like, whoa, you just couldn't say anything. And then you were allowed to just ask clarifying questions and that all, trying to reteach you because we're so not used to just listening, yeah. especially when people are opening things to us that make us uncomfortable. Yeah. But the idea of three-way three -way listening was not only are you learning to deeply listen and attend to in a compassionate spirit to a person sharing whatever they're sharing, you're also learning at the same time to listen to God. That makes sense. Like, what's God saying? Is there a prophetic word for this person? What's God doing in this person? What are God's invitations in this person's life? But then the three-way part is you're also listening to yourself yes. and specifically to your own, like, junk that's coming up or yes. bias or fear. Because yes. what often happens is if we're not paying attention to that, something triggers our fear or our anger or our rigidity or our, our older brother part of uh, like part that all of us have some of the older brother in us. And then we just over talk with 100%. that. And so it's actually like, as you're listening to somebody else sharing, you're actually like learning about your own, the state of your own soul and, yeah. and you're receiving God's invitations to you. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, so I, I think I kind of hear you saying something like that. Like you're trying to, edit your own internal bias that could, yes. even if your theology is right, you know, could sabotage 100%. what God's actually doing in this person's life. We are all walking balls of eco egocentrism and narcissism and self-centeredness. And it is very difficult to listen to somebody and actually hear what they are saying on their terms, yeah. rather than project onto them my own insecurities. I need to name this as a Christian. I, I feel absolutely comfortable saying this. We are being told right now that the church in America is dying, or that we're being told the church is dying, yeah. which I should say, just, just as a quick caveat, is a profoundly racist comment. The church is not dying. The white Western American church is shrinking. The church in America, in, in a, in the, on the globe is ex exploding, exploding right now. And we equate the church with Western European Christianity. And th there isn't a more, prof more racist comment than the idea that the churches are, what you mean is white churches are shrinking. Yeah. So just name that. But if you go to Iran, gosh, I'm getting passionate here. Fastest growing church. You go to Iran, you go to history. Korea, you go to China, you go to places of poverty. It turns out that actually the gospel among people that don't have privilege is exploding. When Jesus said, it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, it's like he was right. <laughs> it's like he was right and that he's going to the people who actually need him yeah so anyways <laughs> i'm insecure right now because i'm being told that in the next 50 years i'm going to be all alone i'm being told that as somebody who believes in the bible the way i do and holds to this vision of the way of jesus that in 50 years all my kids are going to reject me you're on the wrong side. Because I'm on the wrong side. I'm being told that I'm creating harm, that I'm creating all this stuff. It feels so alone. Yeah. And I need to learn that that aloneness is God's invitation to me. That even if I was alone on this planet, faithfully to Jesus, it's okay. Yeah. But if I operate out of insecurity, then I need to fix everybody's problems. Jesus did not operate out of insecurity. He waited a week to talk to Thomas. And I want to have the same kind of patience with yeah. the people I'm leading. 
How do you handle that? I guess my follow-up question would be, a lot of people when they're deconstructing and they're leaving our church or our lives, they feel often pain and hurt, and we feel a lot of pain and hurt on our side as well. And often it comes with a lot of accusations around what we would consider attempting to, in our faulting efforts, stay faithful to the way of Jesus, to orthodoxy, whether it be around human sexuality or other issues or theological orthodoxy. And um, I've just been thinking a lot about that line in Hebrews about those that were worthy, they counted themselves worthy to bear disgrace for the name. Mm -hmm. And Paul's language about the foolishness of the cross, how it's a stumbling block to both Jews and Greeks how um, the way of Jesus, which we think of this beautiful, compelling thing, it's a stumbling block. Yes. And there's, we're increasingly moving into a moment where there's a disgrace. Like, I'm at that weird age where I'm old enough to remember a time when being a Christian was just weird, but it wasn't bad. You know, it was like, oh, you're weird. Yeah. You don't, like, why aren't you sleeping with your girlfriend? And yeah. why do you give money away? And why do you let somebody, like, read the Bible? You're weird. Now the perception is you are dangerous. Yes. You're part of the problem. You're the yes. oppressor. You're the repressor, whatever. And that, that shift is like, it's not persecution, but there's an emotional, cultural stigma and shame. Yes. I, now it's, like, it's like you're embarrassed yes. for trying to be faithful to what yes. Jesus taught and what Christians have believed for thousands of years on every continent. You yes. know? So how do you, that's a hard thing. Like I'm just in all vulnerability, like... <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, it's, like, hard to hold that emotion. It sounds like yeah. so self-pity, stupid yeah. It's so interesting. The, problems, the, but... The, the, the one who actually makes me feel the worst about being a You're Christian. literally laughing at me like I'm talking, as I'm talking. You're, like, <laughs> deepening my fears here, AJ. <laughs> well, what is this? You're not doing three-way listening right now. Yeah. Oh, you're laughing at me as I'm sharing vulnerability about... May I offer some <laughs> advice? No. <laughs> Next, <laughs> I do not give you spiritual consent. <laughs> yes, you may offer it. Please, pastor yeah. me. Help me. Shame is very powerful. Um, uh, the, the same person uh, in my life who makes me feel the worst for being a Christian is also the one who turned me on to Brene Brown. Hmm. And the same person who says all shame is bad is the one that makes me feel the worst for following Jesus. And I find that very weird. There's yeah. this weird shame around following Jesus right now. Uh, I don't know where it came from. I do know. I, I, yeah, yes. I, I mean, we know where it comes from. And we know, we know that the church has made tr- profound mistakes in our history. And we're not helping anybody by sweeping those under the rug. We, we do a service to the world by actually being the one group of people in this world who should know how to say we were wrong. Like, we offer the world the gift of being wrong. And it's a, it's a very weird gift. Uh, because the world, you know, demands, I, I read, I don't remember who said this, uh, but some, I think it was uh, uh, Aaron Bruning, who's a, who's a, a journalist, she said, some, some, Elizabeth Bruning, somebody said, we live in a world that demands atonement, but is allergic to forgiveness. Hmm. So we need somebody to pay for that the That sounds pain. like Elizabeth Bruning, yeah. yeah. Um, but there's no forgiveness in it. So it's, yeah. all, it's all, you know, it's all. Um, so your question was, in essence, like, what do we do with that shame? What do we do with those feelings? There was this very interesting thing that the University of Arizona did a number of years ago. They built this biodome. And this massive, they spent billions of dollars on this outdoor biodome. And when they built this indoor space that had no wind, it had nothing, it was, it was this enclosed space. They, they built it and they put all these trees in there. And 
like in the first year, all these trees grew up, but then all of a sudden they grew up and they just fell over. So these trees would just grow up and fall over. They were just, and they couldn't figure it out. They thought it was the soil. They was like, what, what is it? And then one of, the, one of the nerdy scientists who probably got a PhD just for coming up with this, he was like, wait, 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 wait. There's no wind. And it turns out when a tree doesn't have wind, it doesn't grow. Or rather, it grows and falls over because it has no roots. And that actually, in order for a tree to be healthy, it has to be pushed around. Um, I want to just celebrate right now. I want to celebrate. We're all digging some roots. We're digging some roots. <laughs> I want to celebrate right now that it, it's hard to be here. Yeah. And it's not fun. And it's pushing me around. I've never been on my knees more. Praise be to God. Let the wind come. Let the wind come. And may we grow deeper and deeper every day. Yeah. So shame I don't like. Cast it out in Jesus' name. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. Cast it out. Name it in Jesus' name. No shame. But when you get pushed around, you're just grown up. That's just God's way of growing you up. Yeah. I think it was Charlie Dates who recently said, you know, we don't read our way into maturity. We don't think our way into maturity. We persevere our way into mm. maturity. Yeah. You know, there's something to that. Yeah. Let's take a few questions. Um, number one, anonymous. I've noticed the main reason my friends deconstruct is over the issue of LGBTQIA+. How do we hold a traditional sex ethic and answer this topic well and yeah. lovingly? Yeah. Great question. <clears throat> In my experience as well, that's the number one ideological or theological un unquestion point. Un yeah. Unquestionably. Yeah. <clears throat> in my, in my um, experience here, and it, it would be disingenuous, I, I would even say wrong to give a 20-second clip here on how we fix this issue. That, that's, not, that's not helpful. But having had the privilege of being a professor and a pastor, I've probably had, in my years, I've probably had 50 friends congregants or students come out to me. And when, when that happens, you know, when you, when you, when you have a, a vision of the Bible or, or sexuality the way that, that, that I do, and I, again, I'm, I'm sort of stuck in the first century, you know, I'm archaic, I'm old school, I'm weird, whatever word you want to put on it. Wildly conservative is, I think, what you said earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the way, Portland did that to me. Yeah. Because when you live in an environment where there are no sexual boundaries, you see what it does to people. Yeah. Uh, it is, it's hell, hell on earth. Um, but having had the privilege of having 50 people come out of the closet to me and being traditional as I am, it does something weird in your heart because you have your theology on one hand and your emotions on the other. And you're tempted in that moment, and everybody in this room has faced this, to begin to make theological decisions for emotional reasons. And that's a very dangerous trajectory to begin to follow our emotions to a new arrival of some, some concept. But in those moments of, of having individuals come out to me, um, I actually, I, I may get myself in trouble here or, or it may come across the wrong way, but I hope that I'm able to be clear. I actually have come to see that as a moment of confession. And by confession, I mean when you share something about your life with somebody that's deep and real and hard, you're trusting someone with it. And when I'm trusted with that part of someone's life and I begin the conversation with all the reasons why they're wrong 
it ends up pushing them away from the conversation. But when I begin that conversation by being honored that they've invited me into their story, um, it really helps. So let me, let me, I think it's how we talk. And it's not only how we talk. A number of my gay and lesbian friends actually are honored by the fact that I'm honest with them about where I'm at on this. And I actually think we do a massive disservice to gay and lesbian people by assuming that they aren't strong enough to handle a conversation like this. They can. And actually, some of my gay and lesbian friends are the strongest people I've ever met who are, are people with profound, profound dignity and doing their best to live right in this world. When I'm in that conversation, I want to be the person who listens and honors. And when I'm invited in, yes, I want to share. But if I use a combative voice in that moment of confession, if I use a combative voice, I end up creating some new scars. There's a line in A.W. Tozer's uh, book, Warfare and the Spirit. He says, we need to return to a gentle dogmatism, Mm. which is a dogmatic holding to what the church has taught for 2,000 years. Mm. But man, we give good hugs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know too many gay and lesbian friends in my life who want me to change my deeply held beliefs. They don't. Some of them may, some of them maybe, most of them don't. They actually honor me for being different than they are. And I guess this is my way of saying, more often than not, we have gotten into harm, harm's way of doing trauma um, when, when we choose to be uh, combative and do it in a way where we haven't been invited. Right. So I do think it's a very dangerous trajectory to begin to make emotional theological decisions. And we are all facing these wins all the time and Jesus faced them, and the early church faced them, and it's going to be, the wind will blow harder as time goes on. Yeah. yeah. Next question. In your experience in teaching and pastoring people, do you find that deconstruction is more prominent among white people compared to people of Man color? alive. Praise the Lord for that question. Yes. As a white Christian, I confess, there is a part of my story and my life that I am deeply ashamed of. I walk in it, it's a scar on my heart, it's something I feel like I can't fix. My son is a little white boy, he's a nine-year-old little white boy. And this summer when he was seeing the protests, Black Lives Matters protests, he kept saying like, Dad, are they mad at me? You know, are they mad at me? And I had to talk about our history and our story and, and, and name ways in which we have just, we've botched this. And I think for a lot of white people, this shame, our way of showing the world that we were sorry is that we rip apart our whole tradition and heritage. It almost becomes self-flagellation. We're sorry for everything we've done. And it becomes sort of this public sign that we are atoning for our own sins. In my story, I can't atone for my own sins. Mm-hmm. I need someone else to atone for my sins. I cannot fix everything I have, com- I have done. Yeah. And that shame, that, that white shame, that white, ga- that white guilt or whatnot, is a major engine for why we undo a lot of our faith. Hmm. 
But that is a very, very, very bad reason to do away with Jesus. We need, there, let me say this, it is different to deconstruct bad readings of the Bible than it is to deconstruct the Bible. Yeah. We need to deconstruct bad readings of the Bible. We need to deconstruct white nationalism. We need to deconstruct political visions that says Americans are first. We need to deconstruct visions that say white people are the top. In Jesus' name, may those be cast down and deconstructed. But we should, we should never take that to Jesus, who was a man of color in the ancient world. <laughs> if I am deconstructing a person of color in the ancient world out of my own white shame, it is just doing to a person of color yeah. what we've been doing for generations. So yes, I do. But it turns out that Jesus had browner skin than you and I. Yeah. And Jesus did not come to this world as a white suburban, a white suburbanite, white, white suburban. <laughs> that either. Yeah, know. or that either. I'm ethnocentric, but my center want, I want my center to be Jesus. He's my ethnocentric. Mm -hmm. And if, if that is true, it is going to force me to believe that Jesus is for Jerusalem, Jer Jer Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. It's for the whole world, yeah. not just my neighborhood. I was reading this book a while back called Huey Come Home that was about the story of complex story of New Zealand and colonization and the missionary movement. And it was both one of the most inspiring stories mm. of the church of Jesus I've ever read in my whole life. Wow. And one of the most devastating. And it wasn't a good story or a bad story. It was both, you know? And that's so much of church history. It's like these moments where you're just like, oh my gosh, that is God in the yeah. human story. Yeah. And then these moments where it's just so horrifically screwed up. Yes. But the hidden gift, I think, in church history is that the church was at its worst precisely when it was farthest from the Bible, mm. not when it was closest to. Yeah. And that's what I think people don't often yeah. understand. Like when yeah. the moments we look back on and we're like, at that is we cringe. Yes. We, and we want to just distance yeah. ourselves from and reinterpret it. And yes. you know, well, that wasn't us. That We were part of the Anabaptist guys. So, I mean, we weren't alive, so none of us were. Yes. Who knows? Yes. But, yes. Um, can, can, I, can I say, oh, sorry, you're not done. No, no, I'm, I'm, done. I'm done. You're sorry. here. You're can the I just invitee. remind our audience, can I just remind our audience that the Bible was not written by one white person? Yeah. So the Bible was written by ancient poor people of color. Okay. So if I, as a white progressive, come to the Bible and say, well, there's parts of it I'll receive and parts of it I don't receive. I remember when I was in Portland, we had this whole debate about cultural appropriation. Can I, as a white guy, have a Mexican food stand and use someone else's culture to benefit myself? And we had a word for that. It was in the Willamette Weekly. We call it a cultural appropriation. If I do that about food, they call that a cultural appropriation. But if I take a book written by non-white poor people in the ancient world and accommodate it to my life, they call me evolved. They call me forward thinking. And I think to take a book, 66 books, written by people of color in the ancient world who were all poor, and to say, I'm going to take the parts I like and leave the rest. That's once again to silence the voice of people of color. 
We have a book written by people of color. We don't go to the Bible to learn about how to care for people of color. We go to the Bible to learn from people of color. So I'm done deconstructing their book. As a white guy, I don't get to do that. How do you help people who have deconstructed due to church trauma? A couple more minutes here. Uh, First, um, we uh, have to move beyond this uh, very myopic and unhealthy vision that therapy and counseling are the opposite of God's work. And that some of the greatest healing for us can be being in a room with somebody and just talking about our trauma. So we need to embrace holistic faithfulness to Jesus. You've mentioned spiritual direction, counseling. Um, These sorts of activities are just so life-giving. I don't know one healthy Christian that is not in counseling. That they're, I mean, they're all people who are getting into their stories and they're, they're dealing with their family origins, their trauma stuff. Um, we, need, we need to embrace that. And we need to start preaching on the ways of Jesus and how that includes power. And by that, we need to start talking as, as a community and as a church about ways in which our power has harmed and hurt people. And you do this marvelously. Um, John Mark, a lot of people listen to you. We, we listen to you lead this excellently. But I'm, I'm the head of our denomination's doctrine committee, and there's a crisis right now of spiritual abuse and spiritual power mm-hmm. being manipulated in churches. And we, we are, when we do not name, when we do not name these things, when we do not name these things, we perpetuate the, the harm that has been done. And I need to be sensitive for the person who's going through deconstruction who has legitimate, deep pain, yeah. and they have reasons for undoing what they've received. I have to be f- so compassionate and not write that story off. Listen. Just because there is zeal and passion doesn't mean everything they say is right. Nothing, not everything I say is right. I need to listen. Those, Pope Francis said, the ministry of the 21st century has got to be the ministry of the ear. We've spent the last 2,000 years with the ministry of the mouth. And for a while here, it's important that we listen really well. Mm-hmm. With that, for the person who has been hurt and traumatized, we need to believe that the Holy Spirit does not just heal in the present. He can heal our history. Mm-hmm. And that at those moments that we invite the healing hand of the Holy Spirit, God can walk through our story and mend and bind and heal. We serve a beautiful God. C.S. Lewis said, the abuse of a thing never nullifies its original use. The church has hurt a lot of people, but that doesn't mean we should do away with the church. The abuse of the church does not nullify the church's original call. Mm -hmm. We should see those pains as invitations by God to return to our our apostolic impulse to be healing communities. Mm. Healing communities. 
Makes me think of, we quoted Henry Nouwen a few weeks ago, and in a letter to a friend about why do I need to be a part of a church, he said, the church will never cease to stand in the way of God, but it will always continue to be the way to God. Mm. And that, that language might be too strong for some people, yeah. but I think that's what you're saying. Yep. It is very difficult to come back to the father and forgive the older son. Yeah. Um, I, somebody pointed this out to me. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. It's actually, I th- it's the parable of the prodigal sons because both of them are lost. The, the story of the prodigal is you can never have left home and still be lost. You can have been at home the whole time and never been lost yeah. and, and be lost. In my experience, most people don't deconstruct because of Christ. They deconstruct because of Christians. And the more often that we are willing to name our own brokenness in this story, it is an open pathway back yeah. to the Father. Maybe the last thing I'd love to get you riff about was, would be, what, what do you think is, I'm sure there's not a simplified answer here, but some people go through deconstruction based on past church trauma, and they come out the other side. Like in reconstruction, yeah. this yes. beautiful, yes. humble, yes. deep place of conviction, but humility, wisdom. And then a lot of people just, that's their off-ramp yes. from at least orthodoxy, if not any version yes. of community or discipleship to Jesus. My wife and I were chatting about this last night, actually, and we were thinking, you know, we've gone through some, like, really pain, been many, 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 many years, but some really toxic and unhealthy church experiences. Yes. With all the stuff, abuse of yes. power, adultery from pastors, horrific yep. theology, whiteness, like, all of a sudden, we realize, actually, we've been through all this. Yes. Why are we still here? It's definitely not because we're, like, more virtuous or whatever. Yes. You know, like, how, how did we... And there were, there were long years where I felt deep <laughs> bitterness in my heart of, over... People just said the word rapture, and I just would start yeah. to, like, get red in my cheeks, yes. you know? Yeah. Just yeah. angry, yeah. you know? <laughs> um, and so... Rapture. Uh, uh, <laughs> stop, stop, stop. <laughs> I'm done. Um, <laughs> And it took many years before I could hear the word rapture and chuckle, you know? Yeah. And I'm not trying to demean that. Oh, never mind. Um, <laughs> so what, I mean, do you see any, any patterns between, and some differences between those that seem yes. to heat? Let me, let me rephrase it this way. Some people have been deeply traumatized by prior church experiences, specifically yes. by people with our job. What seems to be the factor in some of those that heal and recover and can still live with love and yeah. humble gratitude for the church? Yeah, that's a brilliant Versus question. those that are never able to really heal from that, yeah. that trauma. Uh, in Matthew's Gospel, there's a, a, a book that uh, Leslie Newbigin, who's a missionary, wrote uh, about uh, the church. It's actually, the title of the book is The Household of God. It's, a book about, uh, it's essentially a book about the, the, the church. And he says that when Jesus talks to Peter, he says... Uh, in two verses, right after, he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. He's speaking about the confession of Peter. And then the next line is, get behind me, Satan. Yes. And in two verses, you see why Luther called the church simultaneously righteous and unrighteous. Yeah. That we are at one moment saints and sinners. You know, Augustine's we don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but I'm going to quote it as though it's true because yeah. it's brilliant. The church is, is a, a whore, but she's also my mother. That she, she is this absolutely unfaithful, 
broken woman who happens to have given me life. Yeah. And f- there's nobody in this room. I mean, if you're sitting in this room and you're a leader, you can testify to the, to the whore mm-hmm. and the mother. Yeah. You've been hurt and nurtured by the same thing. And it's very difficult to embrace somebody in their brokenness and to embrace them for the fact that they've brought you life. And I ask myself the same question, Jesus, why am I still in the church? And, and I come back to, um, <laughs> it's the Bonhoeffer test. And that is, I would be willing to go through and be a part of anything in order to proclaim the name of Jesus to this world. And the church grows us up really quick because we have to love all sorts of people we can't stand. Yeah. Hebrews 1, let us go to maturity. Or Hebrews 6, let us go to maturity. Let us, let us. And your question about what has worked, I have observed, sadly, a generation of people who have replaced the church with podcasts. And I am the biggest fan of podcasts. I listen to them at 10 times speed. I can take notes for sermons and lectures faster than anybody. But the minute I begin to replace an embodied community around bread and wine with a talk, something is lost. And what I need to do is drag my silly little butt to a group of people that drive me mad. (laughs) (laughs) Who are trying, trying to love God. And who all feel the same way about you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, can I just close? Yeah, let's let's, let's wrap it up. The the, the amazing thing about Jesus, um, you know, Jesus and Socrates have one thing in common. Jesus and Socrates have one thing in common. Neither of them wrote anything. All we have from Jesus (laughs) is this group of people (laughs) that he brought together and said, let's have breakfast. Let's eat. And he, he didn't write a book. He wrote a community. He wrote a group of people who would be together. And... Jesus had this way of making enemies one. I mean, the Sadducees and, Her- the Sadducees and Pharisees hated each other in the first century. They hated each other, and they come together for one thing, to kill Jesus. Even Jesus brings his enemies together. <laughs> and then Jesus takes Matthew, the tax collector who works for the government, and he takes Simon, the zealot, who wants the whole thing to come down. He takes, he takes this guy who's a, he's a tea party guy and an Antifa guy, And he says to both of you, hey, you guys, hey, your politics are cute. (laughs) How about you come follow me? And he takes two people who in in the ancient world would have killed each other. And he gives them bread and wine. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. And here's what happened. It worked. And it still works. And in our world where we are killing each other, this is the hope. Yeah. Keep eating until the day he comes back. Jay, would you, um, thank you for the deposit you've made into yeah. our community tonight. 
Would you just pray yeah. a, a prayer yeah, and ask the Spirit to seal the work and deposit a new courage and a new compassion and a new love? Yes, Jesus. Um, yes, Jesus. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we confess our sin to you. We confess ways that we have harmed and hurt others. We confess moments where we've used truth as a weapon rather than as a way to protect and serve. We confess moments that we've offered advice without being asked to. We confess moments where we've seen doubters as problems and not missionaries. We name our sin to you and we plead the atonement of Jesus. God, we need your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy receiving it, coming to the throne of grace with confidence. No shame. With that, in this moment, God, where it feels like we are ripping everything apart, would you be light in the darkness? That when the lights go out, the darkness would draw us all the more. We look forward to the day, God, when Portland is known for its joy. When Portland is known by the name of Jesus. We look to the day, Jesus, when you are the mayor of this world mm. and you rule with justice and mercy and kindness and grace and all the nations will enter its gate with joy and thanksgiving. Mm. And we long for that day. And we cry together, Jesus, come. Jesus, come. Jesus, come. And until you do, we will be found faithful. God, anoint us with the Holy Spirit and send us from this place with power and authority and empowerment to walk in all the things, God, that you have called us to. Send us. We love you in the name of Jesus. Mm -hmm.